0: We apologise to the listener of this tape. There is a hum in the background. This is on the master recording. You will turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13. From verse 18. Matthew 13 from verse 18. Hear then ye the parable of the sower, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the evil one and snatcheth away that which hath been sown in his heart. This is he that was sown by the wayside. And he that was sown upon the rocky places, this is he that heareth the word, and straightway with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but endureth for a while. And when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, straightway he stumbleth. And he that was sown among the thorns, this is he that heareth the word. And the care of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. And he that was sown upon the good ground, this is he that heareth the word, and understandeth it, who verily beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And another parable set he before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat, and went away. But when the blade sprang up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed to thy field? Whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants say unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he saith, Nay, lest haply while ye gather up the tares, ye root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable set he before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is less than all seeds but when it is grown it is greater than the herbs and becometh a tree so that the birds of the heaven come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leaven. All these things spake Jesus in parables unto the multitudes, and without a parable spake he nothing unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Explain unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. As therefore the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling and them that do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He that hath ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid and in his joy he goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a merchant seeking goodly pearls and having found one pearl of great price he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was filled, they drew up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad they cast away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Have ye understood all these things? They sound him yea. And he said unto them, Therefore every scribe who be been made a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Just a word of prayer. Our heavenly Father, we just want very simply to commit this time of the ministry of your word to you. Lord, we are dependent entirely upon you for that power and grace that we all need, myself in my speaking and all of us in our hearing, if your purpose for our time is to be fulfilled. Grant us then, dear Lord, that anointing. By faith we stand under under it. And Lord, we shall give to you all the praise and all the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sure all of you know that the theme of this conference is the king is coming. And um, I have been um, uh, given the uh, responsibility of the parables in Matthew 13. There are seven parables here. Some say eight with this last one of the householder who brought forth out of uh, his treasures things both old and new. And um, these uh, parables, I think there are actually seven. Um, uh, We have an introductory one which is foundational to the whole. And then we have two trios. And the trios are quite interesting because they are divided in one plus two. And then there is an interpretation of the first. And then the second trio is two plus one. And we have an interpretation of the third, the last. And I cannot help but feel that the interpretation our Lord gave to these two trios is the key to our understanding of the trio. Now I want to consider this morning, in the time that we have, the little phrase that has occurred in uh, the Lord's explanation of the tear, of the parable of the tares, the sons of the kingdom the sons of the kingdom. Now, uh, before we actually uh, uh, look at that particular phrase, the sons of the kingdom, verse 38 um, of Matthew 13, I want you to notice a most extraordinary thing. At least I think it's extraordinary. Um, I'm amazed how many Christians read uh, these. They're so used to these uh, parables, these sayings of the Lord Jesus, that sometimes they read them without it ever occurring to them what extraordinary language the Lord Jesus used. Now, will you note carefully the extraordinary way in which Jesus speaks of the seed that is sown in two ways. He speaks of it as the word of the kingdom. The word that is sown. And almost in the very same breath says he that was sown. As if the word that is sown becomes so identified with the person. That in the mind of the Lord the word of God and the Human beings are to become one. I say that is a most extraordinary use of language. Words are normally words. And people are normally people. (laughs) I mean you don't normally consider word being people. Uh, as such. Now just so that you get this quite clear, um, look at um, uh, chapter 13, just look at some of these verses so that I can get it over to you. Verse 19, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the evil one, snatcheth it. Away that which has been sown is in his heart. This is he that was sown by the wayside. Verse 20 He that was sown upon the rocky places, this is he that heareth the word. Uh, verse 22 And he that was sown among the thorns, this is he that heareth the the word and so on. And verse 23, he that was sown upon the good ground, this is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, who verily beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some uh, forty. What does this mean? What does it mean? Obviously In verse 23, we we have what the Lord wants to happen. The word of the kingdom comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We hear it. We understand it by revelation. And then something happens within us whereby that word of the Lord and ourselves are united. And it takes root. It germinates, takes root within our being and begins to grow. And it bears fruit, he says, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. What our Lord must surely be trying to tell us is this. That whilst the word of God is defined without us, it is the canon of scripture, it is the word of God. It must not remain just something objective. It has to do something within us. If the Bible is merely a book. And has no effect upon our lives. If it doesn't get within us and transform us. If it doesn't unite us to God in Christ. If it doesn't bring us into all the truth that it proclaims. Then it means nothing. Just because you believe the Bible is the word of God. Doesn't mean anything. Actually I have to tell you something. Satan also believes it. Satan is no believer in liberal theology. Because he fathered it. He knows it's a lie. You can believe in the word of God as the word of God. But if it doesn't do anything in you, what does it mean? What is the value of it? The Word of God has to do something within us. That is the unique character of the Word of God. It is active. It is um, living. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It gets right within us and divides between soul and spirit. Now... In other words, the word of God, if you understand what I'm trying to say, has got to become flesh and blood. It has to somehow find a place within us where it can dwell. Now, am I saying something that is extreme, that is radical, or is it borne out by the word of God? Take your, your Bible. Turn to a few scriptures, will you? First of all, will you turn to Colossians and and chapter 3 and verse 16. Listen to the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now he doesn't say let the word of Christ visit you. Let the word of Christ instruct you. Let the word of Christ bless you. Let the word of Christ mold you. All of which would be right. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you now dwelling within you is a little more than blessing you dwelling within you is a little more than instructing you dwelling in you is a little more than molding you forming you to dwell in you means that the word of God makes its home within you it comes to live within you and he uses the word richly not just in some meager way but richly did he not have this thought in his mind a hundredfold sixtyfold thirtyfold let the word of Christ dwell in you richly now is that just one little uh, sentence of the apostle Paul that we shouldn't build too much on let's look at James now People always tell me that James was the legalist, but listen to this. James chapter 1 and verse uh, uh, 21 and 22. Wherefore, putting away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, receive with meekness... The implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. Now what an extraordinary phrase that is, the implanted word. Inborn word, it says in the margin, as an alternative. That is, it's not just a word that comes and tickles your your mind, that somehow or other just fascinates your brain. It is something that comes within your being. It is implanted. It is inborn. And then having received that word, it begins to grow and do something within you. Look at 2 Corinthians, the second letter of the Corinthians, chapter 3 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3 and verse 3, being made manifest that we are an epistle of Christ, a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in tables that are hearts of flesh, a letter of Christ. Oh, this, the Apostle Paul says, is what we are meant to be. We are meant to be a letter of Christ. We are meant to be, as it were, the word of Christ. In such a way that men and women see in our character, see in our living, see in our life, see in our conduct and behavior, the Lord Jesus. It is written not in tables of stone, but in the heart, written by the Spirit of God within I used to puzzle when I was first saved and first began to read the New Testament um, about certain phrases in the book of Acts. I don't know whether any of you have ever puzzled on them, but it all comes within the scope of what we're talking about this morning. Look at Acts chapter 6. Acts and chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied. Now I find that a very interesting phrase. How, if you're a good evangelical uh, fundamentalist, as I am. um, uh, uh, How does the word of God increase? Good question. How can the word of God increase? The word of God is the word of God. You don't add to it. It is the word of God. And yet it says the word of God increased. As if somehow or other this book got inside of people and did something. How? What happened? It says the disciples were multiplied. (laughs) So apparently something happened in some of the disciples. Some were just multiplied. Lots and lots of disciples. But within certain lives the word of God increased. It took root. It began to bear fruit. Well, just in case we think that's only one phrase, it's quite interesting if you look at chapter 12 and verse 24. In the same Acts, chapter 12 and verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Now you begin to understand what I'm trying to say. Some Christians, they don't ever question these things. It just goes in one ear and out the other. They just go, oh, the word of God grew and multiplied. Isn't that wonderful? What does it mean that the word of how can the word of God grow and how does it multiply? Unless it got inside of lives and grew within lives in understanding, in the transformation of those people in their conforming to the image of God's son, in the bringing in of all God's truth into their being shining as it were light into them and bringing them into a union with God in Christ so that they became letters of Christ written by the Spirit of God can you imagine what would happen to American or North American society if everyone here was a letter of Christ if every life here was a life that was a letter of Christ written by the Spirit of the living God. Then people would not only have the Bible, they would have the testimony to its power and authority seen in lives. It grew And it multiplied. There's there's yet another scripture. Chapter 19 in Acts and verse 20. 19 and verse 20. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. (laughs) I I suggest that that Luke, who wrote this uh, 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 book of Acts, must have had... An understanding of the word of God. That many modern Christians haven't got. Because the way he. He he handles it, it. It's as if he. Understands that the word of God. Has to get. Into human lives. So here he says. And the word. So mightily grew the word of the Lord. And prevailed. Now. If you turn again back to Colossians in chapter 1, we have the same thing in uh, verse uh, 5 and 6, where we read this. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in the heavens, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, even as it is also in all the world bearing fruit and increasing. As it doth in you also since the day ye heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So this word of the kingdom is alive. It is powerful. It is to dwell within us. It is to be planted within us. It is to grow within us. It is to bear fruit in our lives. One wonders why the Lord Jesus used these parables of seed unless it had something to do with this. Why did he speak of a sower going forth with seed? Unless he understood that within that little dried seed was life and power that would germinate and um, take root and grow up and bear fruit. My dear friends, for many Christians, the word of God is the word of God. But if I may not be uh, irreverent or Almost blasphemous. I think for many Christians. The word of God is dried up seed. That's all it is. A little seed. Encased in a hard. Exterior. They believe it is the word of God. They believe it is. It has authority. They believe it is inspired. They believe it is accurate. They even believe it is relevant. But seed was never meant to remain seed. It has to fall into the fertile soil of our being, of our personality, of our lives. And there, in the dampness, as it were, of the soil of our being, it germinates and roots come out of it. And it it begins to put the roots down. And it begins small as it may seem to begin with. It just begins to grow and grow and grow. Out into more light and more light and more light. Until it bears fruit. My dear child of God we may be thrilled with what we've heard about the coming of the Lord and the signs of the times. But the fact remains that unless this word of God gets into us and takes root within our lives, no amount of prophetic understanding will ever prepare us for the coming of the King. The only thing that can ever prepare A human being for the coming of the Lord Jesus is when the word of God gets into them and takes root. It dwells within them. It's an implanted word. It increases within, it grows within them. The spirit of the Lord is the spirit of truth. He never works outside of God's word. He always takes God's word even when we don't know it. He's always working according to the word of God and he's always making that word of God a reality in human lives. Oh. Dear brothers and sisters, if only it was true of us personally, if only it was true of every Christian family represented in this place, that the word of God was within us as families growing, taking root, if only every so-called church and fellowship represented here was a living letter of the Lord Jesus written by the Spirit of God instead instead of just a collection of bones. Dried up bones into whom the the breath of God has never as yet been breathed. Oh, this matter of this parable. How can we be prepared for the coming of the King if the word of the Lord is not dwelling in us. If the word of the Lord is not doing something within us. If the word of the Lord is not as it were the vehicle and the instrument that the spirit of the Lord uses to bring the nature of the Lord Jesus within us. To bring the character of the Lord Jesus within us. To educate us. To train us. To discipline us. To cause us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if we needed any further proof of what I am saying this morning, then we have it in the Lord's interpretation of the parable of the tares. He says, and the seed, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. Now he has taken a step from the first parable, which is foundational. The word of the kingdom. Hearing the word, understanding the word. And now he speaks of this word as the sons of the kingdom. He tells us the sower is the son of man. He is quite clear in his explanation. I don't think we have to spend any time upon this explanation because it is our Lord's explanation of the parable he himself gave. And in that sense, it is perfectly clear. Let me say it once again the Lord Jesus spoke of this good seed in the parables, in the parable of the tares as the sons of the kingdom. Now please listen very carefully. There is a great difference between a baby and a son. Now a baby can be a son, but the way the word of God uses, not in every instance, but in many, many cases in the New Testament, It uses two Greek words, one for children and one for sons. The Lord Jesus could have so easily used the other word and said, the good seed of the children of the kingdom, we would have all rejoiced. Oh, we would have said, that's wonderful. Children of the kingdom, that means we're born of God. That means we're, by the grace of God, we're within his family. That means we've been introduced into the covenant circle of the household of faith. We are children of God. Praise God that we're children of God. But he did not use that word. He could have used that word, but he didn't use that word. He said, The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. Now why does he speak of the sons of the kingdom? Because babies cannot rule or govern. They may be the sweetest things in the world. Purest, undefiled, and beautiful and lovable and attractive and every other we could say that's wonderful about a baby but there's one thing a baby cannot do it cannot sit on the throne and rule it cannot administer government it cannot arbitrate in disputes it cannot carry into fulfillment national policy or even family policy a baby is a baby The baby may have within it a genetic history that comes from its parents, isn't it so? Surely I know. The family structure in the United States at is not so strong as it is in the Orient and in the Middle East, but my dear, surely you've all suffered from when you were kids, when you had those great aunts and great uncles, and I don't know who else who always said, oh, doesn't he look like Jemima, or doesn't he look like Uncle Hubert, or whoever else? How in the world did this little baby look like Aunt Jemima? This little baby look like great uncle Hubert. Because of genetic history that's why. That baby, you or me. We were born with a genetic history. We have within us all the genes of our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, our great-great-great-grandparents and our great-great-great-great-grandparents and our forefathers and ancestors. It's all within us. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's all within us. The Bible says there's a lot about genealogy and pedigree, partly because of this. Genetic history is all bound up with this kind of thing. And uh, uh, whilst that's on the physical, spiritually it's wonderful. Do you realize that you have within you the nature of the Lord Jesus by birth? Do you realize that you have within you the genetic history of the Lord Jesus by your spiritual birth? If you've been born of God, therefore it would have been absolutely marvelous if he would said the good seed of the children of the kingdom. But the Lord Jesus didn't say the good seed of the ch- children of the kingdom. He said the good seed of the sons of the kingdom. Because he wanted those babies to become children and those children to become sons. That's why. You can be a baby. You can have the family name. And in one sense you can also have the family inheritance but you can't run the family business you have to grow up you have got normally speaking at least something like 16 17 years of growth of training of education before you as a baby a child of God can become what you were inherently in your birth a son It's not that you weren't a son when you were a baby. It was all there, but you've got to be trained. You've got to grow. Supposing a baby remains a baby when he's 20 years of age, how can he ever run a business? He's deformed. Something dreadful has happened. Something abnormal has happened. He's not become the the son that he was meant to be in his birth. So, dear people of God, here the Lord Jesus is speaking in this parable in the light of His coming about sons of the kingdom, as if He is saying, "Listen to this." It. M- this life of mine this salvation of mine which comes to you through the word of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of the Lord Jesus this marvelous salvation of mine you've got to not just be saved not just be converted not even just become born of God you've got to grow and you've got to you've got to be given a character your character's got to be trained it's got to be uh mature, developed, uh, you've got to be disciplined. In the old days, in the, the old world, uh, and I think particularly the European world, if you were born into a family that didn't have a great calling or destiny, your education was not so important. But if you were born into a noble family, your education was very important, especially if you were the firstborn, the firstborn son. From the moment you were born, as we used to say, a silver spoon was put in your mouth. That's a strange old saying, but it just means you're different. Just means that from the moment you arrived in that family as the firstborn son, your training began. It's very hard for you in a republic to understand the nature of a kingdom. But in a royal family, the crown prince has a very special education. A discipline that is unbelievable from the moment he becomes conscious. And certainly the moment he leaves his childhood, the most severe disciplines come to him that come to nobody else because he's going to be king. This explains so much within the word of God. I find it very interesting when we come to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, and uh, chapter 21... Um, I used to think this statement of the Lord was strangely flat, if you know what I mean. I thought, this isn't the climax. I mean, after all the 66 books of the Bible, one would expect the Lord Jesus to say something one more wonderful than this. And this is what he said in verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I used to think to myself, well, that's very... That's an anticlimax, isn't it? He "He that overcomes shall inherit all these things. Wonderful! And then he says, And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Until I understood this, he didn't say, I will be his God, he will be my subject. He didn't say, I will be his God and he will be my baby. I will be his God and he will be my child. He said, I will be his God and he will be my son if you begin to understand now that within your spiritual birth is sonship within your spiritual birth is sonship But that sonship has to be educated. It has to be trained. You've got to grow. Your character's got to be developed. You're going to know special disciplines if you are going to reign with Christ. If you're going to come to the throne of God. If you're going to be one who governs with him in the ages to come. Or I think of the uh, verse that Ernie quoted uh Uh, Yesterday in Hebrews and chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, listen to these wonderful words. For it became him, that is Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now isn't that interesting? He could have said bringing many children to glory, bringing many saints to glory but it says bringing many sons to glory. The Lord Jesus wants us to become sons so that we can share in the inheritance so we can administer the will of God in the ages to come so that we can reign with Christ somehow in countries that are not that are not kingdoms reigning has a different idea to countries that are kingdoms. Uh, let me explain what I mean uh, in a republic the idea of reigning is exhibitionism. A huge crown on the head that wobbled. A magnificent robes and a train that goes. You have to have five or six people holding it up. And Her Majesty wobbles along. And we all th- oh, it's wonderful, antique glory. Everything to do with the past. It's all, oh, doesn't she look beautiful? Think of the jewels that are on her head and the jewels on her hand and the jewels on her garments. Isn't it? Well, look at the sector. Look at the orb. It's raining. And we've got a whole other. Idea amongst Christians, that reigning is we sit on a throne and the whole world says, Oh, wonderful. Now, it is perfectly true that the Lord Jesus is going to be admired in all those who are saved. There's no doubt about it. But that is not what reigning is all about reigning is serviced when you know that that lady under that crown holding that orb and holding that scepter would far rather not be having it on her head or those things in her hand would probably be much happier backing him back in Buckingham Palace with her feet up somewhere reading a comic I mean the thing is instead she has service she's been trained from childhood for service It's service. Reigning is service. It's not that people glory in you, worship you, um, give you adulation. It's rather the whole meaning of coming to the throne is that you might use all your energies, all your talents, all your time, your whole life for others. Reigning. That's why the Lord is training Sons, That's why he's bringing many sons unto glory. Now let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. Another uh, uh, chapter that uh, Ernie looked at last night. Verse uh, 4. Well, we'll read from verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which reasoneth with you as with sons now most of us think that means instead of reasoning with us as sinners or reasoning with us as those delivered from the power of darkness he he reasons with us as children but no he means instead of reasoning with you as babies reasoning with you as children he's reasoning with you as sons now listen My son, think of what I've said about training in royalty. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And then it goes on to explain that it all has an end in view. Wholeness. Holiness. What a shame that holiness has got for so many of us negative connotations. As if holiness is being miserable. Dark. in turn, Anemic spineless holiness is wholeness wholeness that's why the Lord wants to to train us I always remember Mr. Sparks he hated to use this word chastening and he always used the literal uh, English translation of the Greek child training he said, he used to say, My son will regard not lightly the child training of the Lord. For whom the Lord, and, and don't think when thou art reproved, and for whom the Lord loveth, he trains up as a child. Sonship. If once you're prepared to go on with the Lord and prepared for whatever the cost is, I want to tell you, the Lord, once he takes you on as a candidate for eternal service and government for the throne, from that moment, another set of rules applies to you. Your your education will be far more severe than the ordinary child of God. The way the Lord deals with you, the situations He brings you into, the circumstances He allows to develop, the crises that He brings you into. If you really said, I'm going to go the whole way with the Lord, you'll find before long that you're there. It is exactly. Hebrews 12, and my dear friend, just in case someone says, oh, then I'd rather be just an ordinary child of God. Thank you very much. I much prefer coming to these conferences and sitting here and singing and listening to things and learning a few things, but I don't want crises. Thank you very much. I don't want emergencies. I don't want circumstances which are difficult. I don't want to, I'd rather do without. My dear friend, I'm telling you, you'll be one of those the Lord will have to wipe away the tears from your eyes. You will be so sorry. This one little life, a pinprick compared with eternity. This one little short brief life. In which the Lord will do so much for us. That will mean an eternal and exceeding weight of glory. And you're going to throw it away. Wake up. Do you realize. Do you realize that inherent within your birth is sonship? That actually if you remain a child, a babe, you're contradicting your very calling, your very destiny. Don't you see it? Can't you see how the enemy blinds us with propaganda? Propaganda. Don't go that way. You don't want to be a radical. You don't want to be an extremist. There are, of course, those who go to those Christ, Christian family conferences. that, Oh, radicals and extremists. They're weird. But let them get on with it. You don't. You be a nice, ordinary child of God. Then there'll come a day when you'll discover you have contradicted the very calling that was given to you when God saved you. Mr. Sparks spoke quite a lot about this matter of sonship. And as some of you know, this was one of the points that all the controversy over his ministry centred on. Oh, I remember the pamphlets and booklets that were written on this subject violently condemning and denouncing him. They said it was against the grace of God. And I don't know what else. But I must say I'm so thankful that I saw this little difference. I remember Mr. Sparks on one occasion. Of course for me it was very interesting. I have to tell you that. So I have a vested interest in it. Um, But talking about adoption of sons. And he said I just cannot accept that Paul is borrowing a Gentile, an illustration from the Gentile world. As if we're not really sons, but we've been adopted. Now, it was very common in the Gentile world to adopt sons. In the Jewish world, there was no such thing. Because if a person lost their parents, your uncle took you over, or your grandparents, and you became almost like their son but in the Gentile world it was very common even for slaves to be adopted as sons by their masters and uh, he said I think that this word I'm not saying that this is where all the controversy by the way centered um, he um, said I'm not saying that this word what I'm, the way I am interpreting it he said is is." One one can be dogmatic, but I suspect, he said, you can translate this adoption as placing, he said. And he always used this word, placing as sons. He said, receive the placing of sons. And he said, in the Jewish world, it was the Bar Mitzvah. After you were born, 13 years later, you were placed as a son. Then the whole family recognized you. You'd become a son. Now you could take your place in the house of Israel. Well, I don't know. When I look at Ephesians 1, 5, it seems to me that you have this illustration of Bar Mitzvah. But when you look at Galatians... Uh, eh, eh, 4 and verse 5 it seems as if it's the Gentile idea I don't know so I have an open mind but what does it matter the fact remains that whether we understand this as adoption in the Gentile sense or as a uh, confirmation uh, in the Jewish sense recognition as a full-grown son. The fact remains that inherent within our spiritual birth is sonship. And if you and I are not prepared for the discipline and not prepared prepared for the education, then my dear friends, we will never be able to exercise sonship. We shall forever be babies. We shall forever be children. It is absolutely necessary to be born of the Spirit. But more than that is required for a baby to become a full grown son. You may even have royal blood in your birth. If you're a child of God, you have really. But it's not enough. You've got to grow. Here are the four things that I believe are necessary. Growth character education including training and discipline and experience you can have all the character in the world but if you don't have experience how are you going to run the family business God is looking amongst his babies for those who will govern with his son. In the kingdom. That's why he speaks of sons of the kingdom. Now I'd like to just say a little bit about the training of the sons of the kingdom. I, won't, I will leave a certain amount of it probably until we talk about disciples to the kingdom. But I just want to mention two or three things and we'll take them up again. in the training of sons of the kingdom the implanted word the indwelling word is all important to make that word flesh and blood in you requires oh what situations what circumstances what crises what experiences isn't it true? Think for a moment. Even if you're very young in the Lord. Just think for a moment. How did you discover some the meaning of some word that mean of God that means so much to you now? Wasn't it in a very difficult circumstance? Pressed beyond measure. Perhaps at your wit's end. And you didn't know what to do or where to turn. And then the word of the Lord came to you. Shall I tell you something? That word that's come to you will never be taken away. Amen. That word has become flesh and blood in you. It's yours. Amen. I remember I stayed with an aristocratic titled lady, of very great spiritual character. And uh, I noticed that in her drawing room and in her private uh, study, there was a beautiful piece of unhewn wood. And on it were written the words, my peace, I give up to you. Now, I don't know, but that word didn't mean a lot to me at the time. I, when I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. i always interest in people's mottos. You know, it tells you a lot about a person. And, um... I thought how interesting that was and we got talking one day and I said, well I noticed that you have in at least two places the text might be, oh she said, that is mine. And then she told me this story, she said, when my husband died and I was only 23, I didn't know what to do, nobody could help me, I couldn't turn anywhere. She said, because I was of a certain class in the old days in Britain, she said, I couldn't just go to anybody. And so, she said, I was like a lost soul, a child of God, but I didn't know what to do. And she said, I wept and wept and wept and thought I would die. And into my heart came this word, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And she thought, well, Lord, what does that mean? And the Lord revealed to her, the peace I leave with you is different to my peace I give you. And this is how he explained it to her. To me, it was so wonderful. For years later, it came to me also. The peace he left with her was peace he leaves with us is peace of sins forgiven. He didn't need that. He'd never sinned. He couldn't say my peace. I live. He said, "Peace, I live." It's your heritage, your birthright. If you're a believer, it's yours. But then he said, on an altogether different level, a greater dimension, "My peace I give unto you." Then she said, "I understood. It was the peace he had when he came into this world at Bethlehem to live in reduced circumstances." It was the peace he had when he endured the gainsaying of sinners. It was the peace he had in Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but thine. It was the peace he had on the cross in the end when he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit she said I suddenly realized he could give me the very peace he himself had won in those experiences and then she said I understood this he leaves peace of sins forgiven with me as a legacy but his peace he gives And you have to come to a certain point in a crisis. A certain point in a situation where suddenly his peace is given. You know that transformed my understanding years later when I was in a terrible storm and didn't know what to do. Suddenly I found sailing through this storm. Suddenly I found the Lord. The storm continued. But I was different. His peace had come into my heart. Now I want to just say this, when God reveals something like that to an ordinary human being born of the Spirit of God, it becomes theirs. It becomes flesh and blood. It can never be taken away from you again. It doesn't matter if a thousand theologians rant and rave about the the, the wrong interpretation. The fact is it's yours. You have uh, deceived something from God that I remember in my own experience a time when I was in a great, great trouble. And there was no changing of the circumstances of my trouble. I could not see how a way out of it. And into my heart came the words, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors. You know, the storm went on, but I was different. Is it had become mine now to this day. That scripture is mine. Every time I read it, something happens in my heart. Some kind of excitement within me. I know it was God's word to me. And when our beloved brother Johannes fasius was in such trouble. And lost everything and seemed so dark and so melancholy as if he was forsaken by God, I can't tell you the number of brethren that went to him, he had so many hands laid on him, so many things thrown out of him, so many letters written to him, such I was in meetings with him, where people came up and said, brother, this is the root of your trouble, and I felt so sorry for him, and finally I went to him, and I said, I have a word for you, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colour. I said to him, this is God in your life. You'll have to go away with this, a long way with it. But in one moment, God will bring you out. God did. And he said to me only just a few months ago, you know, that word you gave me, that was the only thing I could hang on to. You see, it had become mine and I could pass it on. Do you understand? It was mine. I wasn't just giving him a trite little scripture. It had become mine. And I knew I couldn't as our brother said cast pearl before spine but he was in the same place and I was able to give him something that God had given me implanted word indwelling word now dear friend that time has gone I wish I could talk about so many other things I want to talk about uh, the word dividing between soul and spirit oh brothers and sisters What a problem we have with this dividing between soul and spirit. How little there is of it. How much soul there is mixed up with the things of God. Of course the soul has a right place. But you know somehow the soul is substituted for the spirit. And we have so much problem. And yet this word of God is the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. I may talk a little bit more about that when we talk about disciples to the kingdom. I want to talk about producing treasure and pearl with us. How is it produced? You know, this treasure, I believe it was the Lord Jesus who found this treasure. He hid it in the field. He bought the whole field to get the treasure. And yet, in my estimation. That treasure is also him in me. Do you understand? That treasure isn't me in my fleshly state. That treasure is me in Christ and Christ in me. And and I think of that pearl. He sold everything he had to get that one great pearl. And yet in another way. That pearl is you and me, and it's the Lord Jesus in us. Now, how does treasure get into us, and how does pearl get into us, unless it's by the word of God, by the work of the Spirit of the Lord, or in our lives, circumstances, situations, doing something in us, bringing us to an end to ourselves, until suddenly something happens within us, my dear friends, Jesus gave a parable in connection with this. He said, the kingdom of God is like a dragnet, bringing all kinds of things. Jellyfish, old bottles, rubbish, dead fish, bad fish, and good fish. Now, my dear friend, do you want to just be a good fish? Or do you want to be treasure and pearl? Think about it. Think about it. What's the point of good fish? I don't want to be, again, irreverent. But what is the point of good fish? You don't put it, these fish that they were getting in the dragnet are not being put in aquariums and admired. They were for eating fish are no good you've got to eat them so they're so transient they got bad within a very short time those days no refrigeration do you want to just be a good fish there are plenty of them in the church just a good fish oh there are so many good fish everywhere fish the Lord's fished them he's put them in vessels do you want to be just a good fish That bride, that city, is not made out of fish. (laughs) It's made out of treasure and pearl. It's made out of treasure and pearl. Oh, how many children of God are satisfied with just being good fish, caught by the dragnet of God's good grace and gospel. But there is another dimension, treasure. Pearl. Sons of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom. Are treasure and pearl. Don't you want to be in there? And then another area that we'll have a little look at is leavened. And birds of the air. Because it seems to me that sons of God are trained very much. Through purging out the old leavened. To getting rid of uh, birds. Of course it's much easier to get rid of birds from a tree than it is to get rid of leaven in a lump. But it is the way God trains sons in their attitude to what is not right. In fact, what is wrong. It's one of the greatest areas of God's education is how we relate to evil and how we deal with it oh may the Lord help us there is not a person in this place born of the spirit of God that has not sonship within him the spirit of sonship of adoption has been shed aboard in our hearts crying Abba it's there if you're born of God but oh we want to go on to become sons of the kingdom shall we pray together dear Lord we want together to ask that you in your grace and mercy will realize that sonship that is within our spiritual birth in all of us Lord, open our eyes to see that we have a calling. We have a destiny, Lord. And then, Lord, challenge us deep within our hearts, Lord, to respond to you. Lord, you never push us and you never manipulate us. This matter of sonship is left to us to appropriate your grace and your power and go the whole way with you. Dear Lord, will you write this lesson of the sons of the kingdom on all our heart? We don't know how long we have, Lord, before you come, but, oh, Lord, speed up the process in all of us. Really, Lord, get sons out of us, we pray. Lord, just make us realize our opportunities and potentialities and your grace and your power, all sufficient. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.